Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tom Scholt, and I co-host the channel with Kevin Lindsay. On this episode, I have the great pleasure of finally getting to talk with one of the unsung heroes of cybernetics, whose work has finally begun to receive the critical attention and has long deserved, and upon which I have leaned quite heavily in my own work since I entered this field. With Cybernetics for the Social Sciences, out from Brill in 2021, Bernard Scott has met a long-felt need by authoring a book that shows the foundational relevance of cybernetics for such fields as psychology, sociology, and anthropology. Scott provides user-friendly descriptions of the core concepts of cybernetics, with examples of how they can be used in the social sciences, and explains how cybernetics functions as a transdiscipline that unifies other disciplines and a metadiscipline that provides insights about how other disciplines function. He provides an account of how cybernetics emerged as a distinct field following interdisciplinary meetings in the 1940s, convened to explore feedback and circular causality in biological and social systems, and also recounts how encountering cybernetics transformed his thinking and his understanding of life in general. And so, without any further ado, let's turn to my conversation with Bernard Scott. Bernard Scott, welcome to New Books in Systems and Cybernetics. It is such a pleasure to, uh, I finally got to meet you uh, online in a few online conferences uh, over the last years or so, but your work has been such so important to my, my own studies and my own scholarship um, through uh, previous publications of yours, um, many gathered in a, in a wonderful book um, that edition Echo Realm uh, put out a number of years ago that I would also turn readers to. Uh, but it's so wonderful to have a chance to speak with you for, uh, for a good period of time today. So uh, welcome to New Books and Systems and Cybernetics. Thank you, Tom. This is my pleasure, and I thank you for your interest. Absolutely. So um, we're going to start, although you do cover it in the book to some degree, and uh, in some papers as well, um, because it's it seems to me that your journey, your discovery of cybernetics and your journey in towards working so intimately with Gordon Pask um, is, is absolutely tied into your deep passion for the work. Uh, but can you give us a little bit of a, your academic intellectual biography and how it led you to such a deep engagement with cybernetics? Yes, I think it's probably important to say at the start that I have a, I developed a concept of what it is to be a cybernetician, um, which has informed my, not just my thinking, but my whole approach to life and living. Uh, so it was, it was quite a journey. I started out as an undergraduate in psychology, having decided not to go to medical school. So I wasn't really interested in cutting up bodies. I was more interested in uh, human beings as whole persons. And it was, it was while I was an undergraduate, like, I read a couple of books which mentioned cybernetics, uh, but we had a, a, a lecturer, a new lecturer, gave a course on cybernetics. His name was David Stewart, who is still alive, I believe. And he mentioned uh, uh, Pask. He mentioned Bina, McCullough, Pask, and uh, Ashby, and Beer. I think he referred to all of them as geniuses, which I found intriguing. The course I was on had uh, a mix of uh, kind of internships, places to work, going to work for a few months and then coming back to the college. And um, through his good graces, David Stewart got me a, a placement for six months working with Gordon Pask in Richmond, Surrey, England, not far away from the college which was one of the main reasons why I wanted to go there, because I didn't wish to travel around England very much. It was very convenient. Uh, but I knew little about Pask until I got there. Uh, but I was absolutely astonished when I met him. because He was the most, uh, he was certainly the most intelligent, aware person I'd ever met. And his presence uh, was awesome, just to be in the same room as him. He, um, he, he just commanded attention. And, uh, you know, he was he was. I say awesome, um, and it's working with him that inspired me to take cybernetics really seriously. And indeed, to it gave me an entry into into understanding psychology better because up to that point, psychology had been as an academic dip, discipline been quite disappointing. But I read um, past uh, papers. I read his most recent paper of the time and chased up the references in the library. 
I became a serious student of psychology and cybernetics, um, which was which was wonderful, really, because uh, um, not, not only did it aid me in my studies, I came away with a first class honours degree in cybernetics, sorry, in psychology, uh, but um, Pass took me on as a, a research associate when I graduated, and I enrolled to do a PhD under his supervision at Brunel University. So that's the brief background. Wonderful. Wonderful. And um, yeah, the spirit of his work uh, it lives uh, strong in, in your work and the ways you've developed it and continue to make it just so, so accessible uh, is, is a, a huge service you've done to, to uh, scholars like myself and, and to the whole community. So this book, um, Cybernetics for the Social Sciences. Um, so this is, you know, wrapped in with the question of, you know, why this book now? What made you decide this was the moment to write this particular book? And um, so what is it that the social sciences needs that cybernetics uh, can bring it, I guess, which is a theme, obviously, of the whole book. But uh, maybe those two questions are sort of connected. Why this book now? And what is the social sciences, um, what, what is the social sciences in, in need of that cybernetics uh, can bring? Okay, well... Uh, thanks to Gordon Pask and cybernetics and the 10 years I spent with him developing and applying conversation theory, uh, I became, well, I, I, interested in not just psychology, but other disciplines and not least um, the social sciences, sociology, social psychology, uh, cultural anthropology, um, not so much economics, but uh, management science and so on. And um, I could see that cybernetics was a wonderful tool or um, sort of uh, conceptual framework to use to, to, to grasp these, these other disciplines as, in a holistic way. And um, along, along the way, I discovered that the, uh, a need in, within the cybernetics community being re uh, regularly expressed that there ought to be a good Cybernetics 101 introductory course to cybernetics. And I thought, that's a good idea. Maybe I could contribute to such a thing as the... Uh, as time went by, nothing materialised. But I started to formulate in my own mind what uh, I would like to communicate. And because of my interest in, in, in the social sciences, as a, as, a, as a psychologist, I found a home for me amongst the social cybernetics community. Uh, RC51, Research Committee 51 on Social Cybernetics of the International Sociological Association. I found a home where I could uh, uh, express my ideas and learn from other people who were working in, in sociology and, and other social sciences. Uh, and I, I saw there was a need, well, we had a name in the group, that still is there in the RC51 group, uh, to spread the good news about cybernetics and systems thinking into sociology at large, which is a rather uh, bold aim, given that um, you know there are probably uh, I don't know you know a few hundred thousand sociologists around the world and a couple of hundred social cyberniches. We seem to worthy aim, and and I, I read some sociology books somewhere which was there were brief references to uh, systems thinking or, or cybernetics, but nothing particularly accurate or deep. So I thought. Um, uh, you know, it was a good idea to write for that particular audience. And uh, three years ago, um, my, my friend uh, Chaime Machuelo um, off, offered to work with Brill Publishing to um, be editor-in-chief for a series of monographs to do with socio-cybernetics. And I volunteered to write uh, at least one of those. And eventually, after some discussion, we came up with the... Uh, uh, title cybernetics for the social sciences so my aim here is to communicate to social scientists at large what uh, cybernetics offers and on the way say something about systems thinking and uh, I deliberately um, made it as non-mathematical as I could and I tried to make it very user-friendly in terms of how I wrote about things described things and so on <coughs> Excuse me, I've just had to cancel a Skype call from someone. Yeah. <laughs> Such is the way. Yeah. Um, so uh, that, that, that was the aim, uh, aim for the book. And, and basically, I, I took ideas from a number of papers I'd, I'd, I'd already written 
and then edited them, them together. Yeah, they're going to try again. They always do, at least at least once. I think he can't possibly have refused me, and they must have dropped the call. Well, I've, I've sent a little <laughs> message saying busy. Okay. I don't understand what that means. Great. Um, so yes, that's the that, that, that's the aim of the book. And I also thought it'd be a very useful, possibly, introduction to cybernetics for other people, including uh, those who, like yourself, are already interested in cybernetics. And uh, so it's, it's a contribution to the cybernetics community as well as to the social cyber uh, social sciences at large. Yeah, and it's it's absolutely done that. I, uh, I I'm well familiar with the lament um, of of wishing there was a a suitable introduction to cybernetics, even though there have been books, most famously um, Ross Ashby's book called An Introduction to Cybernetics. But again, it gets it, the mathematics start pretty early <laughs> and they're intense. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we've been, and, and even Wiener's book, you know, it, it's, it, it, so I'm not a social scientist per se. Um, I teach um, theater and uh, I teach in department theater and film, but I, I, cybernetics is very much a huge part of the way I teach acting and directing. And so I introduce concepts of cybernetics to my students and they end up asking me that inevitable question. Well, what, what, you know, where's a good book to start, you know, and, and it's always been so hard to, to do so. And now, now I've got exactly the text. It's yours for sure. Um, so if you would summarize just as a sort of, uh, you know, I hate the term elevator pitch, but we'll use it, uh, what the offer is, right? So a social scientist says, I've got, you know, five minutes. <laughs> what is it specifically? You say it's a framework through which I can understand or conceptualize or see new things in across the body of social sciences that I can't see without cybernetics? What is it that, that it provides that is the, um, the main offer? Okay, well, from almost from the beginning, I say that uh, cybernetics plays the role of a transdiscipline, which uh, looks at similarities and differences across disciplines. Uh, and it's also a metadiscipline, and it comments on how other disciplines work and structures. It offers a core set of concepts which can bring unity to how we look at the social sciences so it is a, you know, as a transdiscipline it's enormously useful uh, if you want a broad comprehensive view of social sciences indeed of how the world works in toto because i would certainly not exclude biology from that nor would i exclude the other you know the other the, the other sciences so cybernetics is really uh, using the, I, think, I think the term was first coined by or used by um uh, Warren McCullough, but cybernetics is a transdiscipline. That, that, that's what I would offer. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. But I would also have to say, of course, his his main theme is control and communication. Yeah. Complex systems. Yeah. And that control, looking at all of these other disciplines or all of these various phenomena um, through the lens of control and communication uh, via circular feedback mechanisms. Um, be, provides a kind of unifying way to 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 look at them. Is am I in that's, the right? That's correct. Direction? Thank you for elaborating that. The the uh, when the when the, the as you know the Macy conferences held in the forties and fifties brought together the thinkers from uh, many different disciplines who were interested in what became cybernetics, and the title of their conferences was uh, "Feedback and Circular Causality in Biological and Social Systems." So it's about the it was it was the uh, the insight the major insight that was uh, found in, in in the forties in a number of places, um, not that the works of precursors, but in the forties people became aware of the ubiquity of the uh, control by negative feedback in particular systems that anticipate systems that pursue goals and so on, and they saw how this could be applied uh, across the board to biological and and social systems. In principle, and that work has continued, hope, uh, thankfully, in, in, in various ways. Mm-hmm. So you give it, you provide a, um, a, a, a snapshot of your life in cybernetics, which is wonderful, and then the story of cybernetics, including uh, a sort of sense of decline and then renewal. Um, what do you think is leading to a renewal in cybernetics? Um, I'm not quite sure at the moment, Tom, it's very encouraging. 
uh, as you know, the decline was largely because of um, uh, the really uh, the, the, the subdiscipline of, of artificial intelligence, which I've always seen as being part of cybernetics, mm-hmm. that came to the fore and got major funding in the in the seventies onwards uh, because it's uh, because of its possible applications in defence, and the more softer aspects of cybernetics were uh, were, were um, screened out. I mean, they, they got very little. I mean, Pask, who I worked with, had, had uh, quite major funding from the United States military in various ways. It's because of their interest in, in training and human learning that uh, when this uh, new emphasis on uh, research having to be relevant for defense very clearly, mm-hmm. uh, the, the funding dried up. Right. This is the famous Mansfield, Mansfield Amendment. Uh, yeah. Is a yeah. major, yeah. Yes, that's correct. Was, uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, there, there was a, um, uh, a, a turning away from cybernetics. There had already been uh, a growing lack of interest in that the, the, the major disciplines like biology and uh, engineering and so on, um, not so much the social sciences, but the other sciences uh, took what they what, what they found interesting in cybernetics and just absorbed it into their own disciplines. They were, all, they were already quite well established with theories and methods and cybernetics just, just added to them, and they didn't take on board the broader trans, trans, transdisciplinary aspects. What we saw then was in the 70s, beginning with um, the past paper you already re, re, you referred to about extending the meaning of goal, in which he starts to discuss the difference between what he calls taciturn systems and language-oriented systems, which begins a, a, a major emphasis on uh, the social uh, human beings with language-oriented systems. And he articulates what are the challenges for we humans to be studying humans. Uh, that was quickly followed by Heinz von Furster and uh, his distinction between first and second order cybernetics, where first order cybernetics is the study of observed systems, which is just standard science, basically, study an object, study a system, and the study of observing systems, uh, which includes the observer himself, human beings, and which uh, necessarily, logically, is uh, uh, reflexive, self-referential, and carries with it clear ethical uh, implications. And alongside those two, we also have Berta Maturana, and his uh, wonderful work on um, the biology of cognition, in which he too clearly places uh, the the human observer centrally there as the uh, as the constructor of the theories that he's um, uh, he's articulating. Um, whilst at the same time, Umberto presents a theory of the bio- biological and uh, sets out the implications for what that means if you are. Uh, you know, a biological system, a human being doing science. Um, and this is a wonderful story that uh, I encourage everyone to try to get to grips with. So those those were the, the main threads that kept cybernetics going, and Pascal so interests in the field of, of architecture and design. Um, uh, certainly von Furster was instrumental in spreading ideas about cybernetics into um, education and other, others, other, other, others of the soft disciplines. So there's a, there was a kind of a period of, of bare survival. Mm-hmm. There's a paper from Pass from the early eighties where it says you know, where where cybernetics can be found. Mm-hmm. An institution in 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 uh, the UK, and he mentions you know the uh, the, well, the BCL. I don't, I don't think it existed anymore. But he mentions. Um, Two or three, four places in the, in the, in North America, uh, and that's about it. Yeah. So it was, it was very threadbare for a while, but there seemed to be a a, a renewal. Um, I'm not quite sure how and when, but in the late eighties, early nineties, a new generation came along of uh, many of them social scientists who began to take a real interest in what uh, both systems thinking and cybernetics had to offer. And since then, there has been a what I see the gradual renaissance as, as um, your generation. As, uh, there are many in your generation now across the world who are interested in cybernetics, and I'm very very thankful about that. So 
my little book is hopefully going to um, power that uh, that renaissance a bit more. Absolutely. I, I certainly am uh, determined to get it into the hands of folks who I think uh, might be open to its messages and as a way to continue to do that. Um, and yeah, you know, the absence of cybernetics departments, of course, you you did your PhD at Brunel, which um, was, you know, one of the places that actually offered a PhD in cybernetics. And those places have vanished, except now there is a new um, graduate school of cybernetics in Australia. So um, it's actually, you know, gotten to the point where not only is there still interest in it, but an official accreditation in cybernetics is now finding its way back to uh, academia. So, yes, um, I'm aware. I can't. I don't know the details, but I'm aware that you know, across the world, we've got a number of institutions or you know, centers for research which uh, incorporate cybernetics into their titles. Um, that's all, 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 all to the good. Yeah. Yeah. The fourth part of the book is key concepts in cybernetics, which we we won't go through at the moment, although some of those concepts, of course, will come up uh, throughout our conversation. But um, if ever there was uh, a glossary that we needed, um, this is it in terms of really accessible definitions of the key concepts of cybernetics. It's a wonderful chapter. And so, I mean, I'm going to recommend this whole book to lots of folks, but at the very least, uh, my students will be getting, uh, uh, you know, will be being asked to read this chapter uh, because it really does um, go through the, <clears throat> excuse me, the main, the, you know, the really key concepts in such an accessible fashion. Um, but it's time for us to talk a little more specifically, I think, about Gordon Pask your great uh, mentor and uh, someone who's, of course, his name has come up many, many times on this podcast and uh, who had such an impact on those who studied uh, with him, Randolph Glanville, Paul Pangaro, yourself. Um, can you say, begin to sketch in a little bit about conversation theory for us and its particular contribution to cybernetics and the social sciences uh, writ large? Okay. I mean, the way to appreciate uh Conversation. This is, we're talking about Gordon Pass's conversation theory. And there are other people who write about conversation, studying, study conversation, and so on. You know, social constructionists and whatever. Um, but uh, you can trace Pass's interests right to the very beginning of his work, when he, he as an inventor, um, he was building uh, machinery. And you know, we're talking going back to the fifties now, uh, which would adapt to or, or, or interact with human beings and amongst those were uh, that famously were um, some, some adaptive teaching machines and uh, Pask um, likened that interaction between the human learner and the adaptive system as conversational in form and in fact that was the roots where he developed a kind of logical structure for what a conversation looks like between a learner and a teacher but at the same time he was alive to the fact that uh, in some sense at least both both systems are self-organizing systems which together as they converse form a, a kind of a larger whole uh, which is self-organizing and uh, he used those insights to uh, write about some of the fundamental concepts of cybernetics in 1960 after 59 there's a paper called natural history of networks and he says uh, he, he talks about the challenges of inter interacting or learning about uh, self-organizing systems in general. And he says it's like being a natural historian when you go into the into the forests or, or onto the savannah and you want to study um, animals and their behavior, uh, you end up with a, uh, essentially having a conversation with them. There's a, a kind of social interaction arises. Um, so, uh, that's kind of the roots of conversation theory from the, uh, the, the the scientific approach and also from the from the natural world. So again, generalizing from that, we can say that the roots of conversation arise in the interaction amongst uh, any organisms that are part of a community. So those mm -hmm. are the roots. But he he developed um, while while I was with with him, he he. he he developed a formal theory, uh, or what he called conversation theory. The name came out, uh, I think, 72 or 69, something like that. And he set out an agenda of what this conversation theory of his would cover. 
and it brought together all, all, all his previous thinking and a lot more. Um, with Pascal, I, I worked on uh, mainly on, on educational projects, building what, what are now called learning environments, which would, uh, in quotes, converse with the student to um, help the student get to grips with the body of subject matter. It was a very formal theory in terms of analysing the structure of subject matter and um, studying different styles of learning and, uh, uh, and, and conceptualization, which was past term for basically for, for the cognition that, that learners um, have as they are learning. Um, now, as always, Pascal's a cybernetian was generalizing from what from our particular research activities. So there are a number of places where you can see these ideas broadening. And um, I should say that it wasn't really until I wrote the book and was well into writing the book that I realised just how important um, the broader sense of conversation theory of, as, a, as a way of studying the social uh, from taken from PASC forms a thread through the book. It, it really does play a central role uh, in, in, in the various chapters of conversation theory does. So his first major book on conversation is called uh, Conversation, Cognition and Learning. So uh, that focuses very much on, on the research we did together. Um, but it's it, it, the, the, so it's a theory of cognition, it's a theory of learning and teaching, it's a theory of knowledge structuring, uh, and it's a, uh, a general theory of uh, social activity, human social activity, conversation. Mm-hmm. And it's got, again, that ethical... Um that ethical, uh, implicit ethics into it as well in terms of the autonomy of the conversational partners and the ways they literally turn together, you know, conversare as the root of, of conversation, this turning together. Um, and I remember in one of past paper, his um, drawing a distinction between communication, which he thought of as a one-way transmission, I am telling you this, versus conversation, which can become the mutual uh, construction of a shared understanding, reach starting from maybe an asynchronicity, a place where we don't understand each other, and then coming to a place of synchronicity where we do understand each other and there becomes room for agreement, but which of course can still include the agreement to disagree. And okay. so it seems that it, it actually sits inside even theories like uh, Freire's, Paulo Freire's um, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, in that the learner and the teacher are turning together and 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 understanding each other's um, conceptual schemas, etc., in a way that's um, you know much less top down, much less unidirectional, and has a kind of um, uh, ethical um, dimension to it. Is that, would you agree with my assessment in that way? That's that's fair enough. I mean, the the distinction Pass makes is between, as you say, uh, interaction between humans, which is basically just a signaling operation, uh, you know, an imperative, a command or a request for someone to do something, just as, you know, as you speak to a a call centre operator over the phone. There's not, there's no real sharing of concepts. There's no real learning about the other going on. So he does. He does say that that runoff says something very simple. Runoff downfall says something very similar. So yes, the uh, we're back to the idea of um, uh, two self-organizing systems, two human beings, in this case coming together, and uh, not synchronicity. The word is synchron synchrony. Mm-hmm. They be, you become synchronized with another human uh, as, as soon as you, um, uh, you know. Uh, to use the terminology of, of sociology, as soon as you have the double contingency of expectations, about expectations at work, that each is expecting the other to participate in a conversation. And then you start to share your concepts and you have, by, by being synchronized, you are uh, sharing, a, a, you're sharing a reality. You're beginning to construct a reality together in which literally you, you are sharing the same space-time kind of world whereas up to that point who knows where you are or where, what, where you've been or what you were doing mm-hmm. um, so you and I are at the moment um, synchronized to some extent 
Mm-hmm. Our brains, our brain body systems are synchronized. I'm computing you, you're computing me, and I'm computing what you are computing about me, and vice versa, as best we can. And um, when when our conversation is finished, we'll go our own, own ways, and I will disappear into another realm, uh, as will you. Uh, but we'll carry the conversation with us, and next time, should we encounter each other, uh, the, the conversation will be picked up and continue. We'll be, we will synchronize again and continue the conversation. In the meantime, we will have been conversing with each other in imagination. I will carry Tom Schulte with me, as I already had you to some extent inside me, but I'm learning about you all the, much more now, and I hope that vice versa. So you'll become part of who I am. And, uh, you, you know, I, I will to some extent already continue to be or be, become even more what you are. But Yeah, absolutely. This is where we come into past terminology, which confuses many people. And he talks about um, uh, psychological individuals. Great. This is where I wanted to go next. This is great. Wonderful. Okay, well, the thing to appreciate here is that Pass understands that uh, as uh, individual human beings, as persons, we are, our thinking is conversational in form. We are, we are conversing with ourselves and we're having imaginary conversations with with our social world that we have um, internalized. So I can still think about Pask and have conversations with him. And I, you know, I learn things from him. And, you know, if I think about him and what happened, and my old teachers, my friends, my family, they're all the population that is me. But, uh, from, the, from Bob Dylan's latest album, we have his opening song. Yes. I, I am multitudes. I contain multitudes, absolutely. Which I understand is, is a quotation from Ovid. Uh, Bob's a bit of a scholar, you know. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I think uh, I think Whitman used the phrase as well. Oh, well, in that case, it's probably possibly more Whitman than, than Ovid. Yeah. Bob got from, uh, Bob got from Ovid the, the phrase, Beyond here lies nothing. Yes, that's right. Wow, this is great. So now my 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 uh, P individual of Bernard Scott is now uh, uh, including uh, Bob Dylan, which you and I could do a whole other hour on Bob Dylan. It turns out. So anyway, <laughs> that's fantastic. Anytime, uh, any Tom. Really. Oh, beautiful. Oh, wonderful. Okay. <laughs> uh, I was, I'm a pioneer of Bob. In that, uh, I, I saw his 1965 concert at the Albert Hall in the UK. Oh my goodness! Like, so does that mean you're in the audience in Pennebaker's film "Don't Look Back"? Basically, uh, yes. Oh my goodness! All right. Okay. Um, well, you and I will have to have another couple hours on that. So, <laughs> you know, at the point now, we've got the idea that you know we are multitudes. Each of yeah. us has a multitude of perspectives and conversations, whatever. Pascal's that psychological individual. His next major insight is to recognize that as we become synchronized. We form a, if you like, a higher order or, or a larger, more complex individual, psychological individual. So our conversation is also the we of us is, is conversational in form. And then you have this kind of fractal structure of um, P individuals upon P individuals upon P individuals. So you and I are a P individual together. Someone who listens to this tape becomes individuated with us forms a, a, a larger conversation as they think about what we're saying and then we, we go back and I talk to my friends about uh, Tom Schulte and our conversation I talk to my family and the the, the individual the conversations upon conversations just just uh, proliferate and in no time at all you have the, the possibility of a whole uh, culture being um, as it were, infected by or influenced by the conversation that we're having. It may be the book I've written, it may be a paper you write, maybe some talk. But this is this is how how ideas spread. It's a mm-hmm. conversational activity. Uh, this is you know, basic interaction, social interaction, which as humans we 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 capture in various ways through our through our texts, our recordings, and our remembering, our own personal. Um, ways of understanding and interpreting what's happened between us. So uh, we we may take a particular topic like Bob Dylan and develop our shared understandings of him and uh, 
then find there are perhaps some differences you know, where you say, well, you you don't like or enjoy or understand his, his gospel work. And I mm-hmm. say, no, I find it that really significant, important and profound. Mm-hmm. So with agreements and disagreements, and we can agree to disagree over certain things, but we walk away with understandings about each other, understandings about what we think each other understands on these topics. And that's conversation in its healthiest forms. You know, humans learning about each other, humans learning about, well, animals in general, living systems in general, learning about each other in relatively harmonious ways. Mm-hmm. And so this important distinction between P individuals and M individuals, so P individuals as the psychological individual and M individual as the mechanical individual and the P individual being this um, self-reproducing, well, literally like a mesh, right? Uh, Talk about past entailment meshes, uh, an interconnected set of entailed, mutually entailed concepts that is reproduced every time we think of it right so every time i think of bob dylan (laughs) that that that's reproduced yeah and that 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 is a a p individual yeah yes we're going we're going forward a bit yeah we haven't mentioned past concept of the mechanical individual okay i'll i'll let i'll I'll ask you to to take us there then uh, basically what you know past is a you know a scientist and he wants to understand the social and he finds it convenient uh, well, right from the beginning of his work on cognition, he makes a distinction between the cognitive system, all that thinking, and the, the process, as it were, and the processor, uh, in, which is um, embodying that thinking. So essentially, this is, this is roughly as people in, informally talk about mind and body. Uh, so uh, when he develops conversation theory, his, his notion of a cognitive system, the thinking part, becomes this P individual we've talked about, the psychological individual, which is embodied in a mechanical individual, which is general term for basically a brain-body system, such as we have. And it's I, I like to call it an, an analytic distinction because we're not saying that humans are less than whole persons and we're just saying that the distinctions we make between the mind stuff and the body stuff are distinctions we make. Mm-hmm. And we use them for certain purposes. And in this case, we want to develop uh, better understandings of what it is to be human. So we, we make the distinction between the, the psychological individual as a whole system, which renews itself moment by moment, day by day, and the, and the mechanical individual, the biological brain-body system, which renews itself biologically, autopoietically, day by day. The two systems are obviously inseparable in reality. You cannot have a P individual which is not embodied, and you cannot have a, a conscious human being who is not uh, uh, an embodied P individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you might have a dead body or an, an unconscious body, but if if a, if a, if, a, if a body is unconscious, you cannot converse with the person. This is how doc. This is where the word conscious really comes from. Mm. It's when doctors. Uh, interrogate a, a, a body that's lying there and say, uh, "Are you awake? Can you speak to me? Wake up!" Mm. And they flash lights in its in in the in the body's eyes, this object, and then the object's eyes wake up and it says, oh, "Where am I?" At that point, there's consciousness, and that the two persons, the doctor and the patients, are knowing something with each other. They are conscio; they're knowing with each other, mm. and it's this. Consciousness as knowing with is is central to past thinking as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, within as aspects of P individuals, the knowing with, either within the individual person, or or, or within the conversation between persons. Uh, but all the time you have you know the dynamics, the biological dynamics of the brain body system, uh, which which accounts for the the basic awareness which all all living systems possessed to some degree we're all aware to some degree except when we're asleep uh, or dead mm-hmm. basically and it's a dynamic which has a drive to it it means that we are uh, certainly amongst the higher mammals and many other species we have a what, what some psychologists have referred to as a curiosity drive or past refers to as a need to learn we're always mm-hmm. 
we explore our worlds, our environments, we add to our knowledge of the world we are, are, are in, through experiencing it, exploration. And if there's something we come across that we don't, we don't understand, uh, we, we resolve the uncertainty as best we can. And once we, once we resolve some uncertainty, we start looking for more. We mm-hmm. are, uh, in, in use Ashby's terms, we are, living systems are eaters of variety. We look yes. for variety. And if you think about a, a small infant crawls around a room, playing with things, looking at things, tasting things, handling things, uh, this is you know a, a wonderful example of, of what it means to be a, a, a eating variety. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, and I think one of the things that maybe people might struggle with to initially grasp, but what to me is one of the great um, advantages of, of PASC's system, uh, PASC system of thought, if I can call it that, and we'll compare it to another one that you compare it to in a moment. Um, the idea that um, a P individual can be made up or can be instantiated rather across a number of M individuals. So for instance, uh, the idea of people say sitting in a church together, um, there's a gathering of M individuals, but if we are sharing a concept, a, a set of concepts that is whatever faith, oh, I guess I've said church, so I, I guess I'm talking Christianity in this instance, uh, we share a set of concepts um, that uh, we are, 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 are being mobilized in this activity we're doing that we're no, and we're knowing with each other. You've got a gathering of M individuals, but in a sense, a, a, a shared P individual is being instantiated by us uh, yeah. together. Is that, a, is that yeah, an accurate rendering? Just as with you and I, we have our bodies, our brain-body systems, which are temporarily synchronized as we converse, and we are creating a, uh, a, a, a common Bernard individual our conversation if you have a group of if you have people engaged in social activity together then uh, there may be any number of, of brain body systems involved but together certainly from the perspective of, a, of an external observer you can say oh look they are conversing together they are one social system but the, the key factor here is that the you know the individuals are self-referential there mm. is an awareness of, of what the what they are doing and saying and what makes a gathering of human beings, a P individual, a psychological individual, a conversation, a social system in my terms, is that they construe themselves as such. You know, they mm. when they sit in church, they are saying, we, you know, we are members of the organization. If you go to work with your colleagues, you all talk to each other. And everybody knows in the sense that they, you know, they're conceptualizing them themselves as members of the organization. That's what brings them together that what what that's what makes the, the organization fundamentally a, a social system and this is a very different concept from for example that of nicholas lumen or aha uh-huh, which is or, where i was going next you're always one step ahead of me that was where i was going to go next well there are, <laughs> there are also other many 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 Simon editions yeah, yeah. and systems thinkers who just talk about human systems as if it's just they're all just another system well you know there's a systems of the of the of the of the people who make up the organization then you've got the production system and the you know socio-technical systems that kind of language it's around but it's not as clear-cut uh, and as i think um you know conceptually satisfying as, as past distinction between p individuals and m individuals so we can go to the whole level of a, of a society or a culture where what makes it a society or a culture is that the participants in one way or another, regard themselves, construe themselves as being members of that that system. Now, uh, this is where I disagree. You know, this is where I, I'm, I, I don't, um, you know, I don't buy into Lumen's concept of, of social systems as, as systems of communications, which are separate from the conscious beings, mm-hmm. um, the psychic systems. Um, that yeah. I'm a fan of Lumen as well as Pask, and I had a brief interaction with you just in the chat function during an online conference where I'm trying to to reconcile the two, and I know that you your feeling is that they are um, sort of ontologically incompatible. Um, But uh, that's another conversation we can have that's maybe a little more sort of inside baseball, as they say, than for this particular podcast. But just just a brief 
brief couple of thoughts here. Yeah, uh, please. I, yeah, I mean, Luhmann has taken taken his taking his main theoretical structure from Talcott Parsons. And Parsons is a, you know is a, a sociologist interested in macro sociology. A theory he wants to develop a theory of society, which is exactly what Luhmann wants to do too. He borrows all that from from uh, from um, Parsons, and Parsons looks at uh, uh, societies as uh, certainly Western societies as a, a set of uh, functional subsystems which work together to keep society going. You know, the system of the law, the politics, um, you know, the, the military, whatever. You know, there are all these fun- systems which function together to keep society going. So it's a, it's a kind of a macro theory of macro systems. And uh, it's got a place for the human in there somewhere, but it's fairly peripheral. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, Lumen takes all that. Uh, and just uh, instead, instead of where um, Parsons emphasizes what he calls action systems, where things get done, um, Lumen emphasizes what he calls communication systems, where where something is communicated. And uh, in both cases, for, for Parsons, obviously, at the end of the day, it's human beings who are initiating the actions. And in, in Lumen's case, it's the human beings who are uh, the environment for the, the communications. They are passing them on or interpreting and so on. So at the level of wanting to have a macro theory of society with functional, which, which accounts for how functional subsystems emerge and how they, um, what's the word for it, interact together, or another, Lumen has another word for it, interpenetrate, penetrate. Yes. penetrate. Yeah. Well, if, if that's what you're doing as a macro sociologist, fine. But you don't, you don't, the other stuff about um, psychic systems and interaction systems is is fairly peripheral. Mm. I've just been reading, uh, I've forgotten a name now, uh, uh, um, Esposito, Elena Esposito is one of Mm. the students. I just wrote, read an interview with her and she gives a beautiful, clear account of how she uses the theory of functional subsystems and media and so on in Lumen's theory. And I look at it, I think, well, you know, really it's still all isomorphic to Parsons. Mm. The other concepts, the psychic systems, are still conceptually trivial. It's just taken from a bit of Freud. Mm. And there's no serious development of the concept of social organisations like business organisations or other social institutions. It's, 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 it's useful at the level of macro sociology. Mm. Mm. And many, many theorists use it at that level. Mm. Yeah, this is great. This is really helpful because I, I think that perhaps what I'm attempting to do is replace the Freudian notion of uh, of of. It always disappoints me when Freud shows up in Lumen because I like so much of Lumen, but when Freud shows up, I, I get a little disconcerted. Um, that trying to replace the Freudian notion. So if the if the social if the psychic uh, system uh, is the environment for the social system that Lumen believes is constituted of these communi- recursive communications. I guess maybe uh, my hope is that the notion of the P individual could replace a Freudian notion of a description of the psychic system that enables Lumen's communication system. So the environment are that we share a bunch of distinctions. And then they get instantiated in conversation so that the P individual might be might be a new way to conceptualize the psychic system in, in Lumen's thinking. Well, it, it, uh, the psychic system is take, taken from Freud, which is, is take, Lumen takes it from Parsons, Parsons takes it from Freud. It, it, was, the, it was the best kind of holistic psychology, is the one that he knew about. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the thing about Freud, Freud, the psychic system, is it's... Uh, um, yeah, it's 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 what's happening psychologically that's embodied with all those you know all those drives and repressions and all that kind of motivational personality stuff. Mm-hmm. Once you've got the Pascan concept of a, psych, a psychological individual, you've got something much more powerful, and it's mm-hmm. embodied, of course, in the uh, in, in the biological system, the brain body system. So the source of, um, of emotions, feelings. And, and so on, all the stuff that you can find in Freud is can be found in in the concept of an embodied P individual. 
Mm-hmm. Not the natural, which we already discussed, is very straightforward, uh, kind of recursive fractal uh, architecture of, of P individuals uh, being subsets of other P individuals or supersets and so on. So the whole of society is one great P individual in the sense that members of society construe themselves as being part of society. And uh, uh, we're all part of that conversation if we choose to see ourselves that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I find all we need is the uh, what I call the, the, P, the psychosocial unity, which is uh, the P individual in past terms, and the biomechanical unity, which is the M individual in past terms. So as we sit here, the, the M individual is, is all the material aspects the brain-body system and all the biological stuff that goes on in there, uh, including the brain functions and all that wonderful, wonderful stuff about the neurophysiology and, and the central motor system, which you get from um, Maturana and mm-hmm. Furster. So you've got all that biology. I'm also coupled to my environment in the sense that I've got extensions. I'm wearing spectacles. I've got a computer in front of me, which is affording the conversation with you. I, mean, I am a, a, a you know a, a biomechanical unity as a as a material system and all that's uh, all that's around me. When I go and sit in my motor car, my motor car becomes an extension of me, you know, as as the psychological individual embodied in not just my body but also in the car. Mm-hmm. So these are very powerful ideas to sort of bring a simplicity and the unity to how we understand uh, the human condition, and we don't. We only need the, we only really need the biological or the biomechanical, and the psychosocial, which captures you know which is the psychological individual of the past. Uh, we don't need the tripartite distinction that um, that uh, Lumen makes between um, communication systems, his social systems, and the psychic systems and biological systems. He has a tripartite distinction. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the past, we only need two. Mm-hmm. And then, as, as I say, Lumen goes on to distinguish between interaction systems, which are what we would call uh, face-to-face conversations, uh, and organizations, which are, as I say, institutions, business organizations, families, things like that, and these functional subsystems. His main interest is in the functional subsystems and the codes on media that, in which they communicate on, on the basis of which they communicate it's all very abstract far away from the from the uh, the, the psychological uh, or the social psychological to come to that right and uh, we, you know, it's uh, and he's uh, that, that theory he's got his theory of structure but he doesn't really develop his, his concepts of interaction systems I mean it's, 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 his ideas are just trivial compared to what you find in richness of social psychology uh, and right. his ideas about organizations they're not developed at one point he says the education system educates mm-hmm. you know it's like saying communication only communication communicates i mean it's it's a kind of um to me it's just a a, a kind of you know pseudo aphorism you know it's, it's a it's, it, 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 it's an affection of Wisdom and insight, which that really doesn't bear examination. Right. If you want to do macro sociology, functional subsystems, how law and politics interact, I mean, fine. But there's only about 5% of places on the planet where you can actually see those subsystems functionally differentiated. Everywhere else, it's dictatorships, corruption, greed. You know, there's no real distinction between these functional subsystems. It all gets down to something else. Mm. But it's interesting to think about how these subsystems emerge if you were to look at this functional analysis of how society works. And, so, and this is society as a macro system. This is Parsons, which is straight from which is Lumen takes over. Right. Okay. So that's my. <laughs> all right well i'm going to keep i i i hear you loud and clear i'm going to keep tinkering with my uh, understanding and see if at some point i can 
throw something past you that you think, eh, maybe there's something here. Um, you, you, you also, uh, we're, we're running low on time. You've been so generous with your time. We, there's also, you, you sort of put cybernetics up against some other theories in the social world. You look at uh, a comparison between what cybernetics offers alongside um, connectivism and actor network theory uh, and, 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 and other things, but because we're running short on time, I want to get to, uh, your thoughts about the future. Um, as it seems that this, this book then sort of moves us towards, you know, your, maybe some of your desires or some of your hopes for the future and what's, um, in the part 10, which is called some socio-cybernetic understanding of possible world futures. So can you just say a few things about, um, about that section as we move to a close and, and, and what would your hopes be your desires, or you think the possibilities are of what socio-cybernetics could bring to a possible world future? Okay. Um, chapter 10, uh, part two or chapter two says, uh, sorry, sec- second section says being holistic about global problems. Um, so part of the theme is about being holistic. Uh, first of all, I, you know, I'm taking, you know, I'm taking for granted that there are global problems. There are serious problems at every level of society, not just globally, but also locally. And uh, I also emphasise that this this has been a concern of cyberneticians from the off. And uh, uh, we had, uh, you know, we had Margaret Mead and, and Gregory Bates and, uh, in the original Macy conferences both cultural anthropologists and both seriously concerned about how how the world works, how humans how, how humans behave, you know, killing each other, all these all the nasty things that go on, and uh, increasingly aware as uh, others on the planet were that we're, you know well it was well understood amongst uh, most intellectuals on the biological and social side, uh, certainly in the cybernetics community, that uh, we humans are. Uh, Destroying the planet, uh, as well as continuing to, you know, kill and maim and enslave each other. So the problems have always been apparent, and you can find reference to these in various commentaries that have been made by von Furster, Pask, and McCullough and Beer. Certainly, Beer, Stafford Beer, over the over the years, World in Torment, one of Stafford's most famous papers. Uh, sketches out this uh, you know, the dire situation that we're in, and, and as I said before, we've only got you know, roughly ten percent of the planet which can claim to be a, democratic. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we are you know destroying our biosphere, um, which is a kind of collective down for all possible um, ecosystems that can be distinguished. So those are the serious concerns. And Stafford Beer inspired me at one point when he says in one of his uh, lectures, he says. Cybernetics is, is about being holistic. So we have to try to understand the whole. How can we? Because we are, you know, the challenge is that we are part of the whole um, that we're trying to understand, whether we're trying to understand it in some kind of philosophical, metaphysical sense, or we're just trying to understand it in some pragmatic sense of what on earth do we do about all these problems? So um, uh, I, I, in, in recent years, I, I formulated some. I call I call Scott's laws of observation and action um, to help inform us of what the challenges are that we face, and they go as follows: There is always a bigger picture. It's an utter conceit to think that we ever know what's going on specifically um, anywhere, locally or globally. There is always a bigger picture. Number two, there is always another level of detail. We can always drill down further and further and further down into the, the mysteries of whatever we want to contemplate as the ultimates, because we never reach them. Now here I'm thinking of quantum physics, uh, which is a never-ending game of trying to understand the whole of which we are a part in another way. There is always another perspective, different ways of looking at the world. Everyone has their own perspective on what's happening. Uh, for, there's always error. We always make mistakes. We're never, no one's ultimately ever right. Uh, you only find... Uh, uh, lack of error in in in, in eternity, you know, in, in heaven or somewhere like that. Um, and then the fifth law is there's always the unexpected. Mm. So as far and really, I became aware of the sort of global issues uh, of to do with the uh, the environment and so on, pollution, whatever. 
in in the late sixties and seventies, early seventies. Uh, I went. I saw, I saw a lecture from um, the ecologist Barry Commoner, and uh, that that really inspired me. Uh, and I've been thinking about it ever since, as a, as of many, 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 many other other intellectuals. In fact, you know, a whole new discipline of ecology sprang up in various forms. Uh, and in in the systems world, many, many people have devoted their work to, you know, systemic understanding. So, so I'm not original here in, in being concerned about these. Problems. I'm just saying. saying um, I'm saying we must look at them holistically, which is, in a sense, an impossible task. But we have our different perspectives, and we need to converse together. We need to work together. So I make a distinction between the first order problems of what's happening materially around us. Um, you know, the damage which is being done in various ways. And at the time when I first wrote this, this the, the article that preceded this chapter. Uh, I, I didn't have pandemics on my list, which is rather mm-hmm. ironic, given what's happening at the moment. <laughs> but then I name what I call second-order problems, um, with, with reference to uh, on first and second-order cybernetics, which is the cybernetics observing systems. We, the, if there's a complex first-order world of all the systems, all the natural systems and so on, which are going on, and uh, all the other sort of material work activity that happens on our planet. The second order problems are the uh, the interactions, social interactions, the individuation that's going on, and the conflict, lack of harmony amongst all that, and it's it really is hyper complex. Um, we can sort of consider it from fairly macro levels of different competing belief systems uh, and competing political systems, ideologies, and so on, and we can look down to the very micro level of, of why is it that um, my neighbour, for some reason, uh, thinks that, as I discovered a few years ago, with one, you know, someone I, I had been introduced to, I discovered that uh, she thought that um, black and white people are different species. Mm-hmm. So there are level of, of, of ignorance, lack, lack of understanding, uh, different perspectives, certainly, but lack of understanding at all, uh, at all levels, certainly locally. So there's it's so much to be done, or so much that is wrong, and it depends on how I'm feeling on a particular day, whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic about the future. And on a, you know, on a, on a good day, I think, well, with the oncoming natural disasters, which are coming upon us fast, faster and faster, and we're still barely waking up. Certainly not at a global level waking up. Um, you know, there there are fires and storms and floods everywhere, getting worse, worse, worse. And where will it be 10 years, 20 years? The observe 50 years. No, it'll be five years, 10 years. And we'll all be washed away, or many of us. So there's going to be disaster there. And uh, given the lack of harmony amongst human beings, uh, it, we, we don't know what else will go on. People are worried about nuclear war. I'm just worried about, concerned about the, the ongoing um, conflicts and, and uh, oppression that goes on. You know, the, the, the slavery around mm-hmm. the world. There's a huge gaps between the rich and poor. And for heaven's sake, we've just had um, Richard Branson, a, 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 you know, a British mm-hmm. entrepreneur, who made his living initially by selling L, you know, selling LPs, final LPs by post. Uh, you know, in in the in the in the sixties and seventies. I mean, he had long hair, dressed like a hippie, but his beliefs and anything but what, what mm-hmm. he And he just put himself into space. Why? <laughs> what kind of contribution is that to what's going on? Mm-hmm. That's apart from what, yeah, and we've got Jeff Bezos doing the same thing. That's mm-hmm. apart from what the nation states continue to do, the Chinese and the Americans and the Russians, the, the, whoever, the British, put it, yeah, wanting to go into space. Spending billions and trillions on that sort of activity, well, we're, um, yeah, mm-hmm. well, we're facing all, all sorts of catastrophes and issues down here. So that's the big pictures that I'm concerned about, Tom. And mm-hmm. I hope cybernetics is not only a tool to help with solutions, as it already is, it exists, you know, cybernetic concepts of, of feedback, feed forward, and, and so on uh, are in, deeply embedded in eco- ecology. Uh, and Increasingly in the uh, our understanding of the social world, thank heaven. Um, but um, we also have the, uh, uh, the the real need to 
to educate in the best mm-hmm. sense, to raise awareness. Uh, I mean, just as one simple example, which annoys me or annoys me, disappoints me, makes me sad, is where we have all this talk about race and racism. Race is not the scientific concept. Mm. There's no there's no credibility to it anymore. It's used in local context by by some uh, physical anthropologists, I believe, but it doesn't have any any, any scientific meaning. And yet, both racists and anti-racists. Um, yeah, uh, maintain the use of this, you know, this trope, mm. race, racism, and you, how do you penetrate into that? When how do you how do you try to educate people when you're they're burdened by these these um, basically ignorant, misguided ways of thinking about what human beings are? Would you suggest we use a word like prejudice or discrimination? Yeah, instead, yeah, yeah exactly. prejudice, discrimination. Mm-hmm. Uh, ethnicity, different ethnicities is a useful term. But let's retire that word because it's exist. It's continuing existence only actually propagates this false distinction. Great. Well, thank you so much for the time you've given us, Bernard. Uh, the book is a real important contribution. I'll certainly be sharing it with with many many people. And uh, it's been great to have you here on the podcast. Thanks again. Well, Tom, thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to share some of my thinking and also. Have a very, I hope, productive conversation with you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.